sometimes you have to go you have to go a slightly different direction for a little bit and it takes a little bit longer but you've got to deliver on a market need you've got to deliver on what the market needs now that's jordan kretschmer the founder and ceo of livefire which was acquired by adobe in 2016 where he is now a senior director continuing to scale the livefire solution within the adobe marketing cloud before starting livefire jordan worked for a few agencies as a creative director he then joined current tv a media platform backed by Al Gore and saw the coming rise of user-generated content. In 2009, he left Current to start Livefire. As a designer, Jordan created highly realistic mock-ups of the product he envisioned, but it took several more months before the first version launched. What Jordan is talking about is the capacity founders must develop around finding ways to deliver value not only to the market right away, but to their investors as well, which is what Livefire did, pivoting just a few years into the first version of their platform while continuing to grow. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano, and today we're speaking with Jordan Kretschmer, the founder and CEO of Livefire. Jordan and Livefire raised over $52 million in funding and grew to over 150 employees by the time it was acquired by Adobe in 2016. Jordan joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, the challenges involved in building Livefire, especially in the early days, how founders need to approach product development, what it's now like being part of Adobe, and much more. So let's get started. Hey Jordan, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm very excited to have you on the show today to share your insights with us about what it was like building Livefire, the process of being acquired by Adobe, and what you're currently working on there within that within that team. So before we dive into all that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm from a tiny town up north of Dallas called Coppell, Texas, and grew up there and uh, went to college for a couple of years studying uh, design and philosophy and dropped out after a couple of years and uh, moved out to Boston, uh, where I took a role doing uh, digital creative director uh, at an ad agency up there, building and, and running the uh, creative team focused on user experience uh, in a digital world. And this is going back like you know 13 years, 14 years, where digital was just starting to be something brands cared about. So is doing things like building microsites and flash and all that fun stuff. Moved to San Francisco about uh, 11 years ago, same thing, worked at an agency running digital creative and, and then uh, wanted to go more into living out here in San Francisco, kind of caught the bug, wanted to go work at uh, more of a, uh, in a, in a tech startup environment. So took a job running brand and product at a place called Current TV, uh, which was Al Gore's TV network that was like a user generated content TV network where I was inspired to start Livefire about nine years ago. So what was that first job at Current like for you? Was this your first exposure to tech startups and the growing wave of user-generated content? Yeah, so um, more than just being at Current and, and working on a really cool product and doing marketing for a uh, what was a pretty fun brand was the people that I met there. I mean, I made some of the uh, most important connections uh, of, of my career there at Current. The talent of people that they had was incredible on the technical side, on the product side, and on the programming side, so the content creation side. That experience and, and being around those people is, is what inspired me to branch out and, and start my own thing. And so uh, those those are people who I still have incredible connections with today. Uh, a lot of them have become founders themselves. Some of them started companies around the same time I started Livefire. And it was a really inspirational environment to be in. 
Yeah, absolutely. That sounds really exciting. And so, as you mentioned, in 2009, you dove into startups launching your own company with LiveFire. Can you tell us a bit more about what LiveFire is all about and what really motivated you to launch it? Yeah, so the the one thing at Current that stood out to me was just how user-generated content was starting to become one of the you know, most prominent forms of content on the web, and not just blog posts and you know, stuff like that, but Twitter was on the rise. Facebook had been around for a little bit. Instagram wasn't even out yet, but uh, uh, I kind of saw this tidal wave of content velocity coming out of normal, everyday people who didn't have platforms before. And one of the places you know, on the internet, especially if you, you, know, you have to kind of rewind your brain back 10, 11 years, the primary place for people to interact with each other was still comments around websites, around news sites. That's where most opinions were shared and where most communities were built. And it was about that time where I saw Twitter and Facebook kind of starting to take ownership or, you know, the, the audiences were moving towards, you know, external platforms from these media companies. And the media companies were losing their share of voice. They were losing audience as a result of this. And most importantly, they were losing their distribution channel for content. And so as I was experiencing that firsthand, at Current TV, which was a media company, it occurred to me that there's a big problem to solve here for our original customer base was publishers, media companies, broadcasters, you know, people who have huge audience, but needed to figure out new ways to engage that audience. And LiveFire, the first version of the, the company and the product was around building tools that allowed publishers, you know, publishers would integrate the tools into their, into their sites in order to drive their readers' engagement or viewers engagement on the sites. And so comments and ratings and reviews and sharing and building inner site networks through following other users and things like that. Uh, and so it basically created little mini social networks within the media company's websites. That was the origination of everything. Of, and uh, we went on from there, but that was the that was the start. It's funny that you bring up the first version because I wanted to ask about, you know, what that first version of the platform was like. What was the process you took to create it? And how did you acquire those first few customers? Oh, man. Okay, so... It's, uh, first of all, the hardest thing I've ever had to do. So I'm not an engineer. I'm a designer. So the one kind of tool I had in my toolkit was I could design the user experience that I was envisioning. And by virtue of being able to express my vision in more than just words, I was able to express it via you know designs that looked real and was able to convince a couple of engineers to work for you know on behalf of LiveFire basically without having to pay them a ton of money to build sort of the first prototypes. I was able to get an agency, a local uh, uh, digital development agency, dedicate some resources in exchange for equity in the business. So I gave away equity to a development shop basically, which is funny. Is now that's a model that a lot of dev shops uh, use is they'll take equity to build prototypes of products for founders who aren't technical. We were one of the first, uh, the, the first I know of, and, and to do that just out of necessity, went $20,000 in debt at the time, thought I had saved plenty of money to get to that first launch version, um, was feeling pretty good about my position generally. A year later, I was massively in debt. I was paying you know, rent by doing cash withdrawals from credit cards then transferring that debt to other zero interest credit cards and paying engineers and other people um, whatever scraps I could while I was you know, struggling to even survive. And so it was a pretty Pretty hectic 18 months for sure. But once we were able to get the first version of prototypes done and, and out there, investors that had said no to me multiple times started saying yes. And so we were able to raise uh, just under a million dollars in um, in seed funding. And that was before we had the product in market. So we raised a million dollars, was able to, through that, hire full-time engineering resources, which is really what we needed to you know get the product in a finished enough state to bring it to market. The concept was first, let's give the product to small 
smaller sites, to bloggers or small blog networks where audience growth was really important to them and uh, get them to kind of test it for us. So it was a free product that we put in market and uh, used you know, all the learnings from you know, the free product to start work on building the enterprise version. And the enterprise version, really what, what matters to big media companies at the time was, can we own our audience? We want our users to be able to log in with our usernames. We want to be able to get their email addresses and collect data and run advertising that we sell versus you know, an ad network. And, and so we built a ton of enterprise features that also included a lot of quality control stuff. And so one of the big problems at the time was how do you control the quality of content on these articles and, and videos that, that these media companies were putting out. And so we built a ton of AI that would do things like automatically filter for sentiment. And this is at a time when nobody was really doing this. And by virtue of that, we were able to actually tag users. And one of the, the values that we brought to, to these publishers is we created this network across the internet where a user who logs into site A uh, and starts commenting, we know their behavior on sites B, C, D, and E uh, have always been viewed as very negative by the community. They've downvoted the comments or the moderators have blocked them or banned them. And we can use that information to help publishers make sure that the people interacting on their sites um, were interacting at a high enough quality. And we gave you know, tools to the, uh, the publishers that they could you know, sort of control the kind of quality that they wanted that, they, that was acceptable to them via you know, very easy to use interfaces. And so we brought a lot of uh, automation to a process that used to require tons of moderators. I mean, we had our first customer ever was News International in the UK, so News Corp uh, in, the, in the UK. And uh, they were the first ones to deploy the platform. And within two years of deploying the platform, just relied on our automated content filtering to make sure that the uh, user interactions and comments were you know, high enough quality for them. And, and so it became a cost reduction thing. We were able to sell the platform for hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of dollars. And uh, publishers were basically rebuilding their community platforms on top of uh, the LiveFire system. So that was really productive. And you know, the next phase of the business was, how do you grow past publishers? I mean, publishers, media companies at the time were thriving, but they're you know, certainly, as everybody knows, at this point, you know, have been struggling for a while now to figure out how to monetize in a world where they don't own the distribution of their content anymore, these third party social networks do. And so, you know, we had to make a pivot about three, four years into the business and start figuring out where we could add value to a different market. Uh, where we could sell software built on the same infrastructure, which at the time was was handling millions and millions of comments a day. We had built some features that would aggregate content that was being posted on Twitter and on Facebook and on YouTube and centralize content onto the publisher's site. So for example, if a user tweeted an article and then somebody responded to that tweet on, on Twitter, we would start to thread those as comments inside the comment section and and that feature really was the starting point for the next phase of the business, which was content curation, aggregation, content centralization, uh, collecting all the valuable, relevant content from around the web uh, for these media companies and centralizing it in one place was extremely valuable for them. So we built a a new product that sat beside the first product that would do that. And it just so happens also that brands, marketers, the ability to curate content and be content creators themselves, which kind of turned into the, the buzzword content marketing, right? That was on the rise and they needed more content than ever to be able to deliver on that. So we ended up building a product that was extremely valuable, both for media companies to tell stories and curate content that they didn't have to create themselves. 
and also created a product for brands uh, at the same time that allowed them to tell stories and, and, and share content with their audiences without having to create it themselves. And, and that the, the brand marketing uh, customer base is where a majority of the business now is and, and the primary reason why Adobe acquired us. That's really amazing. And as you mentioned, and, and did a really good job laying the context for the creation of Live Fire, you have to rewind your mind to how the internet worked at that time. So it was really amazing that you guys were able to see what was happening within these communities and the coming shift towards content marketing. So on that same theme, what was the process you took in terms of reinventing yourself while continuing to drive growth on the current LiveFire platform? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of it comes from, you know, uh, the a lot of founders have a very dogged vision. They say, this is what we are going to do. This is what, what my company will be. And that's absolutely necessary to make sure that you always keep the North Star I mean, why are we here and what's our vision? What's our purpose? But I think the best founders have flexibility within that and understand that sometimes maybe going left first and kind of working your way around the neighborhood product wise to get to that North Star, you kind of take a, take a longer path than maybe you expected. A lot of times founders will start developing and I see this now. So now I, um, I invest in companies and, and advise startups um, and, and founders and the one big mistake that I, you know, there's a few, but on the product side, the biggest mistake that I see is building towards something they they are just unrelenting on without fully understanding or appreciating the market realities. And sometimes you have to go, you have to go a slightly different direction for a little bit and it takes a little bit longer, but you've got to deliver on a market need. You've got to deliver on what the market needs now. If you deliver on what the market needs three years from now, you'll fail before you get there. And so that was a really important lesson and something I think I did kind of naturally. I let our customers help drive where the focus was in order to make sure we were constantly building revenue while we were working towards this larger vision. And, and it's not the easiest thing in the world to do is to keep that North Star and you know have to kind of go a slightly different direction for a little bit. But it's one of the most important things a founder can do to be successful within the process of building the company. You can't you have a dogged vision and you're unrelenting on driving everything towards that vision and you go to raise another round of funding and the investor says, well, what about revenue? And it's not there, right? Then you have 50% of your story is missing in that second or that third round of funding. And so, you know, every time you go back to the investment community to say you want more money, they also are demanding. So they want to see different things from the business. And so your story has to you know, shift and be a little bit fluid to make sure that you're driving both the customer value and also the investor value. And so when we went back to that second round of financing, the story wasn't a lot anymore about commenting. The story was about content curation, centralization. We were building the internet's largest content engine. And while we had the infrastructure to deliver that, we only had the product plan. So the story was we're closing this round of financing to go deliver on this new value that we can bring without having to build a ton of new technology and the ability to tell that story to investors while also delivering product today for customers that adds value is a, it's a it's a thin line and the best founders are able to do that and, and iterate their product vision uh, their product strategy in real time while they kind of manipulate their way to the the, the bigger vision yeah that makes a lot of sense and some really good advice I was going to ask you a few more questions around, you know, the process uh, you took towards raising money, but I think that does a really good job covering that. So from there, what were some of the biggest challenges in scaling LiveFire? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> in every category of the business, there were challenges. In sales, it was finding the right head of sales. I'd never started a company before. So 
and definitely never an enterprise software company. And so there's playbooks and there's machinery that once you've done it, you know, needs to be there. And this was all new to me. And, and there was nobody else on, on my team that had done it before either. So, you know, here I am trying to figure out how do I scale the sales organization? I can't be doing every sales meeting. We're closing, you know, 10 deals, 15 deals a month. It's not scalable for me to do that. And how many opportunities are we missing? So on the sales side, finding a sales leader. I mean, we, we had numerous sales leaders throughout the course of the business and until we, you know, finally locked on the right person. And, and that's a hard one because, you know, when you're a seven, eight, 10 person company, you know, that's gotten one round of funding and you've closed a few deals, some really impressive sales leader who ran a hundred person team at Oracle is not going to come join your company. They're making too much money. They have way too much experience. Why are they going to risk all that on a small startup? So you always got to keep you know, on the sales side, you have to keep hiring up and you end up, you know, sort of hiring multiple heads of sales over the course of time in order to get the business to the right scale. So that's one that was one major challenge for me was was scaling the sales org, scaling the marketing org to support the sales org. Hiring as soon as we passed like the 30, 40 person mark became really hard for me to uh, you know, be in every interview and to screen every candidate. So we went through some hiring issues where, you know, we hired people that whether they weren't a good fit for the culture or weren't exactly the profile of person we needed at the time. And then you got to do, you know, you got to do layoffs. And sometimes layoffs, we had one round of layoffs that were for financial reasons. You know, we, you know, needed to readjust the business because you grow really fast and you hire all these people just to put hands on the ground. And then all of a sudden you look and you say, you know, we're spending so much money on customer support, for example, or on, you know, different areas of the business. And our customer profile has changed and the kind of people we have supporting the business hasn't changed. And so you have to make these big adjustments. Some of them, again, financial, some of them for culture reasons. We went through one round of layoffs where it was for culture purposes. It's like we, we a lot of us who'd been there for a while, it felt like we lost the sort of the core uh, mojo of the business and, and the fun of being there and the kind of people that were there. And so uh, we did another round for, for that reason. That's the most difficult thing I've ever had to do both times. It's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating and sad. And you feel like a failure as a founder having to do that. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, you know, everybody wants to feel like they're working for a company that's always up and to the right. And in a lot of cases, you know, it's not always up and to the right. You have moments of extreme growth, you have stagnation periods, you during those moments of extreme growth, you staff up to support it. And then, you know, you you stagnate, and you got a course correct. But it's it is that is one of the hardest things a founder ever has to do, because you feel like a failure. You feel like you failed your team, like you failed your investors uh, when you have to do that. But it's one of the most important things to do to make sure that the business is always in line. And, and, you know, one of the things if I were to do this again, I would pay a lot more attention to how we scale the machinery, the operations of the business uh, and the kinds of people we're hiring to make sure it's a little bit more future looking and less reactive. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that Livefire was acquired by Adobe in 2016. What was it like going through that acquisition? So yeah, so we're a year and a half into uh, Adobe now and the experience, I mean, I, I always say like, I, you know, if I were to go back and do another company and it's an enterprise software company, I'm not saying it would be boring by any stretch of the imagination. I'm sure it would come with its own set of challenges, but in terms of learning new things, I learned so much in that process. And now when I look back, I have so much institutional knowledge about what it takes to run a tech startup enterprise software company and what is so surprising to me about being at Adobe, um, which is far, far larger than Livefire was. I mean, you know, we were 150 some odd at the time of acquisition. Adobe is 28,000. I'm learning just as much, if not more now 
as part of Adobe, seeing how all the machinery works together, how you operate an amazing HR department, how you operate a sales organization that's 5,000 people and make sure that they're fed enough leads and how the demand generation systems work. This is a, it's operating at such a different scale. And the other part of it is, you know, I no longer get to make all the decisions. And this is, this has been, I think the biggest lesson so far I can't walk into a meeting and just say, look, guys, I understand what you're all saying, but go do that. Because most of the people in that meeting don't report to me. They don't you know, have any fealty to me. They're not there for my vision. They're there in, in their own you know, organizational structure. And so you have to learn to lead by influence. You have to you know, rally people around you to accomplish your goals. You can't just, and this is why big companies things take so long, right? And a lot of times it's confused as bureaucracy or politics. And I don't see it that way. You know, I, I actually see it as a, a completely different style of, of, of working. So when I'm going to, you know, we're, we're building a new product right now in the experience cloud at Adobe, my team is. And in that process, it's been really interesting to see how the more people you get behind you from around the organization, from the marketing org, from the sales org, to the finance org. Uh, and all of these business units are kind of rallying behind it. By the time you're done, everybody's in this, not just because you said we're going to do this now, but because everybody, the the weight of the machine is behind you and the amount of you know momentum that that gives you once you get to that point where approval has been given or the decision has been made to move forward. It's this this feeling of accomplishment that I actually never felt at LiveFire. Every time I made a decision at LiveFire, I was already moving on to the next thing that needed to be decided. I never took time to think about, you know, the success we just had in making this decision. It always moved so fast and it always felt sort of unsupported. It was like, we're doing this just because kind of I said so. And it always felt, you know, what if this is a mistake? By the time you get there at a place like Adobe and everybody's behind you, it's an incredible feeling. And, and so the, the whole team, the LiveFire team feels that momentum. It took a little bit to get used to taking longer to make decisions, but it's been an incredible experience so far for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds really exciting. So you just mentioned working on a new product with a LiveFire team within Adobe, and I'm sure you can't dive too much farther into it, but what's next for LiveFire within Adobe? Yeah, so um, you're right. I can't talk too much about it, um, but uh, you know, LiveFire created the biggest cloud content engine out there curating, I mean, at this point, billions of pieces of content on behalf of our customers. So the infrastructure to do that is pretty intensive. And the front end interfaces for controlling all of that are are, are pretty robust. And so Adobe is a content company. Um, as most people know, there's two sides of the business, content creation, and then content, essentially content delivery, right? So you have the creative cloud for content creation. And then you have the experience cloud, which has a bunch of solutions for delivering marketing effectively in every digital channel you can think of. And in between that right now, isn't there's not a lot going on. And so there's uh, a, a lot of work happening on our end now to figure out how we take the, uh, the live fire infrastructure and start connecting all of the solutions that exist around Adobe through content. And so it's, it's, it's an exciting new challenge for the team and one that we're, you know, we'll be you know, talking more about uh, come March of, uh, of next year. Well, I feel like I've already learned so much through this conversation with you, but do you have any final thoughts or words of advice to leave us with? I mean, not really. I think I've covered a, a bunch of uh, different interesting topics in there. I think the, you know, the, the main takeaway is it never takes uh, as much time as you think it's going to. It's going to take five times as long. You know? And most people look at successful exits 
and say, oh man, I just heard about this company last year, or they just started getting buzz a couple of years ago and they were so successful so fast. And a lot of people don't realize, and this was my mistake too. I was in this environment where I see all these companies getting funded and, and, and getting acquired. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a three-year journey, right? To build a technology platform and a, and a product that's going to get acquired. And I had you know, in my head, all the companies that could, you know, would, would want to acquire this. And, you know, fast forward, you know, seven, eight years, and you look back and you realize a, a lot of times in 99.9% of cases, um, the company is not successful. And so, or it took, you know, years and years and years, you know, the iceberg goes very deep. So don't be fooled. I mean, when you're going to start this, it is a life-changing journey. And in my case, took a decade. In most cases, takes longer than that to build a valuable business. Uh, and there's tons of components that go into it that 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 make that true. But, it, you know, uh, set your set your expectations around how much of your life. I'm 35 years old, almost 35 years old, 10 years of my life. A good chunk, 33 percent of my entire life was spent doing this one thing, building this one business. And so it's a significant undertaking and you can't take it lightly and go into it with that and know that uh, at the end of it, uh, if you, you know, put everything into it that it needs, uh, it'll go the right direction for you. Absolutely. I couldn't think of a better way to end the episode. Jordan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today and share your story and insights. Really appreciate having you on. You got it, Franco. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.